Welcome to the Riverside Project podcast. We are mobilizing Houston to empower families and transform generations. We hope these conversations will give you a greater understanding of the issues facing our community and inspire you to find your place along the river. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Riverside Project podcast. Um, we're so glad that you're here with us today. As you can see, this is our, not our normal podcast setup. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we lost our office space, and so we had to shift, and we are currently building uh, a new podcast studio. Um, but the great thing about that is um, we actually have the opportunity now to do some virtual episodes in the meantime, and we're able to hear some voices from people, experts um, in this space who are all over the country. And so today we have Dr. Denisha Keating with us today, um, and she is an author, a CEO, a business owner, um, and a keynote speaker. And ever since she could remember, Dr. Keating has been passionate about education um, and helping others achieve success. Um, as a former foster youth, she has learned the importance of furthering her education and building a network of people around her. Um, since 2009, she has helped students understand the value of education and striving um, to define success um, by what that means to each individual. And so um, she has created this concept called um, From Foster to Blank. She also wrote a book called From Foster to PhD. Um, and that's really to just encourage foster youth and advocates of foster youth to strive for their dreams and goals. So, Dr. Keating, we're so grateful that you're with us today um, and grateful to hear um, just a little bit more about your story. Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, we always start these times off um, just giving us an introduction. Who are you? Uh, where have you come from? And what brought you to us today? So, yeah, just um, it's always that weird like, hey, where, who are you? I'm like, uh, it's a big question. Not an easy thing. Tell us everything. It is because I feel like with, with our stories, they're so unique and there's so much to it that it's like, okay, let me tell the parts that people can know. <laughs> but right. for me, it's like I came from, you know, just, I'm just a person. I'm here, a human being, just like everybody else, but Absolutely. someone who has had life hit just a little bit harder. <laughs> and, and, and I think, um, for me, it's like, yeah, I've, I've written my story into a book uh, called From Foster to PhD. Um, I was a foster youth, but I'm still someone who advocates in that space because I realize that there's not a lot of people who do that. Um, and there's a ma many, many reasons why. And sometimes it's shame. Sometimes it's guilt. Sometimes it's fear of what other people yeah. would say to us or having people uh, want something from us because now, you know, they see us successful and they're like, well, now I want from you. And, and that can be hard, but I advocate to show people that we are, we are someone who can overcome hard things. Um, a lot of people use the word like grit or, you know, you're fearless or you're so strong. And it's like, we yeah. shouldn't have had to be. Um, but what I hope is that we can turn our pain into purpose and our pain into something that, that shows other people that they can get out of where they're at too. We don't have to stay there. Um, but I'm hope hopeful. I am somebody who can encourage people and be an encourager um, and a friend to people who might feel like they don't have anyone in their circle. Yeah, absolutely. That's so needed in this space. Um, what we hear often is um, so many youth and even the people serving those youth that everyone just really feels so alone. And um, so much about mm -hmm. the idea of the river is that we are not alone. We actually have other people in this space with yes. us to help us and to carry that load um, with one another. And so, yes, thank you so much for, for speaking mm -hmm. that um, as well. 
Um, so share, share with me a little bit about just your journey, um, through education, um, not going, you know, you can share any of the details that you want. I know there's a lot of it in the book that's just so vulnerable. Um, but share just a little bit for us about where you, um, that kind of education journey from foster to PhD. Um, can you just share a couple of tidbits? Yeah, it's a lot um, because I was homeschooled before put into high school and it was one of those things that we weren't really homeschooled. It was just like a cover for my parents. It was more of an ego trip for them. um, If I'm being honest and that's not Mm -hmm. a, that's not a far-fetched thing to say. They liked saying, Oh, we had 11 kids. Oh, we homeschool all of them. It was like everyone praised them for it, Um, but we weren't being educated. And so I learned how to read when I was nine. I have dyslexia and that I didn't realize that until high school. I just thought I was a slow learner and I didn't, I didn't recognize that I was writing backwards or like reading slanted or all of the things that happen when it comes to, you know, dyslexia and um, other issues. But when I was put into high school, it was, it was definitely, um, I was met with teachers, some teachers who wanted to help me and other teachers who were just like, you're a lost cause. You come from that sort of a family. Like you, you don't get the special treatment that a good student would. Um, and I, I really hate the whole GPA thing, but I know like too, we can overcome GPAs. <laughs> it's just hard when you do strive and you fight for good education in, in the sense of just like, I show up every day, I try every day, I study every day. And there are people out there who are smarter than me. Um, and I know that, but it's, I'm going to still try for my, my own benefit. Um, but when I went to college, it was a community college and it was definitely looked down upon by a lot of people. I was mocked and made fun of. Um, I remember taking like the, we used to have like these exit exams for high schoolers where you had to take it your junior and senior year. And if you didn't pass your junior year, you took it again. If you didn't pass your senior year, you went to continuation school. And I remember stressing over it so much. And everyone's like, it's fine. You learned this in the eighth grade. And I was like, I didn't go to the eighth grade. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was so frustrating because it's like, I, yeah, it's like, you don't understand. They're like, you just have to try. I'm like, I am trying. So it was, it was emotional just to get through high school. And when I entered, I was already behind. I was 20 units behind my, my fresh, freshman year and all of my teachers failed my, me in my second semester because I was put in in the second semester. So then going to college, it was like a last ditch effort because I didn't want to continue working in a warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of where people said, that's your future is you get to do jobs like this. And there's those jobs are not degrading or bad. It's just like, if you want more for your life, that's not where you stay. You know, and I wanted more. I didn't want to just be like, yeah, let me work a nine to five and work very for very little money at that point. Yeah. I think I was making like $6 an hour. And I'm like, that's so low. Um, and I didn't like that, that thought of like always being in debt, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was like, I want to do something different. And I looked into college, went to community college and struggled for a really long time. And it took eight years to get my bachelor's time. And then I started raising my siblings while trying to finish and went through my master's program in a year and my PhD program in three and a half years. Uh, But along the way, it was consistently like there were some people who supported me and some people who just mocked me and made fun of me and said, like, you're never going to make it like you have these dreams like you shouldn't go for. Um, But then the opposite side where they're like people would judge me before they even got to know me or my story and just be like, Oh, you're just another, you know, white girl trying to go out and 
have mommy and daddy give everything to you. And I'm like, you have no idea where I've been. Um, And it's hard because like in college, I was homeless for from 19 to 24 before I got my own apartment. And I was like house hopping and living in my car for a full year. And people would just be like, yeah, that's cool. (laughs) And I'm like, wow. Okay. But then there were people who came along too. And they were just like, hey, come stay with us. Or like, hey, we have a room for three months. But it was, you know, from... 18 to 24, I had over 33 different addresses that I had registered with the state of California. And it's just like, you look back on it and you're like, you shouldn't have survived. Like, let's be real. Like I shouldn't, I should have gotten into more trouble than I did. Uh, More bad things should have happened because I was staying at strangers' houses. Um, Like I'd meet them on day one of college or or whatever and just be like, hey, let's be friends. (laughs) Like I'd end up staying at their home that night. And it's like, that's really dangerous when you think about back on it. And you're like, how did... How did I survive? And it's because of other people coming in and saying, "Hey, that's not a safe thing. Let's let's go this way." Yeah, that so many statistics just being blown out of the water. There, um, we know the statistics around yeah. um, kids who are aging out of foster care and the percentage that go on to to a college education or any college or even graduating from yeah. high school. And it is, like you said, a, a, not just a, a challenge. Um, it is exceedingly mm-hmm. difficult um, to persevere. One, just, you know, learning challenges and the constant moves and all the educational challenges that we know that yeah. are, are happening with foster youth, but also those relational challenges and that sh- the feelings of shame that come from yes. other people. How did you, what motivated you to just keep going? You said, I just don't want to live um, to just be in debt. I, I want to make something for myself. But did you did you feel like that was an internal perseverance that was just something inside of you driving you, or was it external, or maybe a combination of both? Um, what pushed you? I think it was a little bit of both because even though I had like, hey, I don't want to be here. Like, I never imagined my life being what it was. I didn't know that the doors I have open today are the doors I would have had open. Like, I just didn't yeah. know that. Um, but uh, there was a big factor of my siblings where at, you know, 16, 17, I was like, I need to get my life together. So that way, if they need me, I'm able to take them in. And, you know, of course you're just kind of making that decision up front, but that was always my worry. And I remember people telling me in high school, like that, that's not your concern. That's your parents' concern. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like, this is my concern. While most kids are going out and having fun on Friday nights and like hanging out with people or going to dances, my first concern was my siblings. Um, and that, that was something like when foster care happened, I blamed myself a lot. And that was, that was something that my parents both had said, like, this is your fault because you didn't step up more. And so when I turned 19, I was the fourth oldest. Um, but still it was like, there was still that like, Hey, you're the one in the house now. So you have to do these things. But then after college or after high school, it was still like your risk. It was my responsibility. Like I had to stay local. I had to go to a local community college because if I left, they wouldn't get the care that they needed. Um, And so there was always this like, hey, get your life together before things happen and blow up because it will. It always does in my family. So got to get this done. And sure enough, at 24, it did. It blew up again. And foster care was another thing hanging over us again for a second time. Um, And luckily... Uh, the state of California was like, yeah, you could take them at 24. <laughs> like, You can stay you know, with them in a one-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment and figure it out. And that was hard. And they're, one of the hard parts is that people don't realize underneath guardianship, when you don't go through the foster care system, 
and it's not labeled the correct way, you actually go through a guardianship or a kinship route. And kinship and guardianship are still vastly different in my state. Um, guardianship doesn't have, have as much funding or help or guidance as like kinship and foster care do. Um, and so there was a whole mess with like not getting the financial support that I could have or should have gotten. Um, and, and that was another challenge where it was just like looking back, it's like if I didn't have community coming in and being like, you have to change your game, you have to do better things, you have to make good choices, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And one of my friends who's a pastor sat me down when I was like 22. And then again at 24, when I took my siblings in and he's just like, I know you know this, but you're not the typical 22, 24 year old kid. Like you can't just wait for life to fall into your pocket. You have to go out and get it. And it was just like that adult conversation where it was like, yeah, Oh yeah. Like I don't get to be like my friends. Um, I gotta, I gotta get going. But that also came like with the loss of friends, because a lot of people my age were like, this is too much. Like mm-hmm. we're all trying to live and, and go out and have fun. And you're all over here being serious. Um, so it was, there was like two hits where it was just like external and internal motivators, but it was not something that some people have those same things standing in front of them and they go, yeah, I'm done. Yeah. Which it makes sense. Cause it's a it's really hard. It's hard decision after hard decision. Yeah. So how many of your siblings did you have with you at, during that time? Uh, five. So they were 12, 14, 15, 18, and 19. Okay. Um, and we were in for nine months in a one bedroom, one bathroom, 500 square foot apartment. So not very big. Yeah. <laughs> while you're going to school. Uh, it, was, it was hard. Slash working. While I'm doing my bachelor's, while I'm working, um, I ended up moving from like a part-time job to a full-time job. And like overnight, literally overnight, it was like, hey, you're a parent now. Um, yeah. And that like, I like, I, I remember so many moments, I was thinking about this yesterday, that just like kind of sitting back and being like, oh, I'm in it. Like, this is it. That yeah. I can't fail. I can't screw up. I can't make any mistakes. Because if I do, it doesn't impact just me. It's going to impact them. Um, so it made me, I feel like, when I took them in, it made me kind of like get really serious. And that's why I ended up finishing my master's in a year and my PhD in three and a half, because I was like, I have to go. Um, but it also went on the bad end of it, <laughs> even though they all grew up and I finished my my PhD when my the last one, the youngest one, who was 12 at the time, he's he was 18 in 2021. He graduated the same year that I finished. Um but it was one of those things that I didn't even stop to really like celebrate yeah. because I was just in my head. I'm like, still go, still go, still go. And it's taken about three years for me to finally be like, whoa, I don't need to do everything. I don't need to save the world. I don't have to jump into that. I can slow down now. <laughs> but it was like that weird, um, I, I recognized I was in a consistent fight or flight uh, where it was like, I'm always going to go into the fight ready, but it's like, Ooh, this is not good. Cause you don't celebrate your wins along the way. Yeah. You're, you're in that survival space. Like you said, you're just going and that adrenaline's mm-hmm. going. And it's like, if I stop, I don't know that I can get started again. Um, so I just kind of have to keep at this pace. Well, and you're not, sh- yeah, absolutely. And you're not sure it's more like some people are like, well, it's like, are you afraid? Someone asked me that they go, are you afraid of like not starting up again? And I'm like, well, no, it's, it's, if, like I recognize this year because this year has felt more slow than like last year because I was in survival mode last year, but because um, I, I had my daughter early, but it was one of those things that it's like, I felt like I was like in go, go, go mode. 
And they asked, they said, if you were to sit still, what are you afraid of? Mm-hmm. And I was like, my world falling apart. Like, that's what I'm afraid of. And that's what I've been afraid of. And I recognize like, that's not this year. This is my whole life. Like if I stood still, things wouldn't get done. And now I'm like, I'm not in that environment or in those environments anymore. Like I can sit still and things are not going to fall apart. I know this, but it's, it takes the mind and the heart to align to finally be like, you can sit still Mm -hmm. and it will be okay. But I think so many foster youth, like we get into that mode of like, it's fight or flight, man. It's it's go for survival mode. And if we don't go, things are going to fall apart or we're not going to get where we yeah. where we need to go. Um, or something bad's going to happen if we're stationary. You know, so it, it's it is overwhelming to where it does make you want to quit a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um because that that uphill battle is so hard <laughs> that it's now it's like if I hit a little road bump, I'm like, oh my God, this is going to take decades to get out of. And then I'm like, no, it's not. Like, I got all my tools. I know my resources. I know what to do. But at 20, I remember that feeling of just like, it always felt like I was going uphill and people were just like, you're not going to make it and knocking me back down. And I'm like, oh, my little, my little mountains today mm-hmm. are not my mountains that were at 20 years old. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you mentioned that, that idea of shame kind of always over here, always, you know, there's a sense of responsibility mm-hmm. to keep going and, and the things that you are, you have in front of you that you have to do. And then there's always kind of that aching kind of that voice of, of shame that, that it's motivating, but not necessarily mm-hmm. in the most healthy way. Um, how did, how did you yeah. kind of overcome that aspect of, of life? I'm still working on that. <laughs> As many of us are. might be like a lifelong thing. Um, because it, you know, 28 years of survival like that before I met my husband and hit him being such a blessing because it's like, he's like, hey, I'm here to help now. Um, and my community who helps in that. But it's like 28 years of fighting. It's going to take 28 years to undo, uh, maybe even twice as long. But I just keep reminding myself, like, look, you've won. You have ran across finish lines you watched other people um you don't have to do this alone and that i think when really that helps is like hey there's a whole community of people out there who want to stand by me and then if i'm not in those communities i need to get in those communities (laughs) Uh, because it's hard to find people who are who are trustworthy and honest and authentic um but it's like okay, I need to recognize first that like, I will always be working on this and always be honest with myself. Like if I'm starting to feel off and feel like I'm in fight or flight again, I'm like, okay, what's going on? Let's analyze what's happening. (laughs) Let's sit back and kind of think through what's going on. And why do I feel like, and usually, usually if I feel a panic or I feel like I want, and it's going to sound so silly, but if I feel like I consistently want to slap people, there's something going on internally that's telling me I'm off. And I know that that sounds funny, but it's not like I want to get violent, but it's more of that like defense mechanism. It's not like, Hey, I like this. It's more of like, why, why do I feel like I'm afraid for my life right now that I have to physically like pick up an arm to, to help, like help myself get out. And that's where I have to sit back and like start looking and asking the questions. And this is like, I personally think it's going to be lifelong because it's not something that the, the brain retains so much. And it's like that little fear behind it might be like, Hey, this, we know, we know this route. And I know that the brain gets imprinted with information that it's like, we've been down 
a path before it tells our brain tells us like, Hey, you're in danger. And we've been through this already. So if this is what it was last time, it's going to be like this again. And so I'm having to retrain my brain and say, Hey, but the second time we went through this, it wasn't like that. The third time we went through this, it still wasn't like that. So it's that retraining of the brain. And I've noticed there are moments where it's not like, I'll I'll be sitting back. I'm like, Oh, I didn't panic. Like I used to. And I'm like, great. Now let's keep going. Um, But it is, it is a lifelong thing that I'm going to have to work through. I feel like, because it's just, it took a long time to, to get hurt and to Mm -hmm. be hurt in the ways that I was and to a long time to get out of survival mode that I think it's going to, I have to get used to good, not bad. And I got used to the bad. And it speaks to that idea that trauma that happens in relationship has to be healed in relationship, that we, we begin to heal from shame when we retrain and rewire those pathways that say it doesn't always have to be, I do this. And then I get a response that built that increases my shame that you can connect with another person. So we're like caregivers and caseworkers and the people who are interacting with kids and that are in hard situations. Mm -hmm. We do have that ability to look them in the eye and help them re kind of have that new pathway to, to, like you said, a, a, a pathway in their brain that tells them a different story. Um, it's so, so important. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about your book. Um, a little bit about the relationships, heal in relationships. I think sometimes we hear that and we mishear it where it's like, it has to be in the same relationships. Right. It might not be, uh, you might never get that healing from that old relationship, but it's new people that can reshow you yeah. like what is, what is community? What is love? What is help? What is, what is good? And that's where it's, I know for myself, like I could never get that healing from the people who hurt me, but I have found the healing through people who have shown me what real family is, what real love is, what real community looks like. And that's incredible because that's something like I never realized until I was like, oh, this is what that, that saying means. Cause I kept trying to chase the old and that's never going to, you're never going to find healing in the people that hurt you. And if they're not willing to change, it's not worth it, but you can find healing through other people and be like, okay, this is what it should look like. Did it take a while with those new people who were showing you those things? They were showing you what the good is. They were showing you those things, but I, you know, did it take a while for you to build the type of trust and them staying when your responses may not have been congruent oh, yeah. with that? Yeah. And some people are just like, Hey, we're done. We're not trying with you anymore, which I understand why. Um, but I think for me, if anyone ever comes too quick and they're like, I have the answers for you, I'm going to be your best friend. I'm going to heal you. Or like, you can trust me. Those are things that I immediately go, er, like, yeah. hmm, you're not something you're too quick. You're trying too hard with me. Um, it's the people who have always been really slow to the relationships to building the deeper relationships, not the wide, but the deep relationships to be like, you know, they're not trying to trauma bond or they're not trying to trauma up and be like, yeah, I went through something similar. They're just like, you know what? I see you. I want to know you. I want to love you in the way that you're comfortable with. And then as time went on, people revealed, like, I also went through stuff like this, or I, my, you know, my, a friend of mine or a, a my spouse's friend or my spouse went through this. And so I was able to learn like who my safe people were because reality is a lot of us want to care for kids in foster youth. And we want to be like, we're your best friends in like a week. And it's like, that is where we go. "Mm, mm, mm." Normally people who have done that to us, it's been bad. Caseworkers try to do that a lot where they're just like, Hey, I know you, I know what's good for you. Just listen to me, do what I say and you won't get in trouble. And it's like, I did what you said and I still got in trouble. 
I, I did what you said and I still got moved. So then someone who's authentic wants to come in and it's like, just slow down, let them have time, let them build that relationship with you and that trust with you. And sometimes it's the silence where it's like, I just want to sit with you and I don't want you to give me anything. I just want you to sit with me. So yeah. that it's super different when we're starting to look at it like a real relationship, but it's like, we're going to come in more scared. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Super helpful. So tell me a little bit about um, why you wanted to write um, the book From Foster to PhD, Letters from a Suitcase. Um, I've been reading it and um, I have cried a little bit. I have um, smiled a little bit in those moments where you're, it's written kind of from your perspective at the age where you were walking through all of these things and knowing, mm-hmm. you know, with my own kids and, and being connected to different kids um, in this space, I, I see those glimpses of their stories too in your words um, mm. and the heartache that's there and the healing that's there, um, just a lot of emotion. But um, I'm really, really grateful for yeah. it. I imagine it being a very vulnerable thing to do. So um, what made you want to do it? Oh, it was terrifying. <laughs> it was scary. Um, really, I, I started, after I did my research, I started looking at um, just stories of foster youth. And I realized there were not a lot of foster youth stories out there. Um, there was maybe one or two that I saw in the education realm, but most of the ones that are out there are all sharing in depth, in detail, their story of abuse, Mm -hmm. um, which is fine. But for someone like me, it was very hard to, to read those. And to even get past page five, (laughs) I would always be like, I can't do this. This is too much. I was too close to my trauma and, and that like, I was too close to what hurt me. And I don't know if I could like, people give me books a lot and they're just like, yeah, my whole story's in there. And I'm like, wow, trigger warning. Like this might not be a good idea. So I wanted to highlight specifically within the education side, because that's not highlighted a lot to where it's like, Hey, here are the struggles that we go through as a foster youth, but also too like, You're telling me to go with, but I'm not set up with my educational foundation missing. Mm -hmm. I have dyslexia. That was never addressed and helped. And it was very, it's very odd to just be like, go find success and good luck. And you're like, I I can't even spell at this point. Like I can't pronounce big words. I can't sound smart to people. I I don't have an intensive vocabulary. Like it doesn't happen, Mm -hmm. you know, but I started looking and I was like, I want, what I want is for people to see the educational struggle more than know my abuse story. Mm -hmm. I want them to see the win, not just the, okay, well, I'm fine now. If you look me up on social media, like, but I still struggle even with the age that I am with imposter syndrome. I still struggle with those emotional issues. And I, I really was hoping, and I am hoping that the book can highlight those educational struggles, but also highlight like the trauma influences lifelong and we have yeah. to consistently deal with it just because we deal with it once doesn't mean we, we won't have to deal with it again on a deeper level. And when I started putting the stuff in there, I started taking out details of the abuse. Um, but it was kind of, it was healing to me because there was something that I saw from what I wrote my senior year in high school for a senior project. And I was like, didn't realize because like I had someone write something and then I wrote something, but I mixed them up thinking one was me and one was her. And then I looked at it and I was like, oh, that was me. That's my story. And I was like, wow, I've come a long way in healing. But how many other kids are in this trying to navigate college and people are just like, you're not showing up, you're not trying and they're giving it their all. We don't know what happens behind people's closed doors in their in the hardness of 
of their emotions. And so my hope was to show that more than the abuse details, because I, I mean, people have asked, they've read the book and they're like, well, why did you go into more detail? And I said, because this one wasn't yeah. necessary to have it. It's not what it's about. You know, this one needed to be more about what real struggles we face in education, but also to like the self-doubt that we have in addition to the educational struggles. Like there's the educational struggles and there's the relationship struggles. Then there's the physical financial struggles that we go through. And then there's the self-doubt that goes into that too, that everybody faces. But you pile that on onto one person and it's just like, how do we recover? <laughs> so yeah. my hope is to provide the the hope in that to be like, hey, you get to see the end of the story as well, but you get to be brought through the journey of what those emotions feel like in, in real time of reading things from, from my own diary. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned the educational challenges that you, of course, mentioned in your book. And now, of course, you're working in a space mm-hmm. where you're getting to address that from the PhD level. Um, can you mm-hmm. describe a little bit about what those, you, you've mentioned some, what those educational challenges for foster youth um, are and how they come to be? Um, and then just what's most helpful yeah. for overcoming that? What does it take to help them through that process and to overcome those challenges? So some of the, it's every grade level is different, but K through 12, a big issue is only 50% of foster youth are actually graduating. But by the eighth grade, 75% have decided if they're going to go to college or not. Mm. That's like, that's what they have found when they spoke to foster youth who have left high school. Uh, One of the biggest issues within K through 12 is that teachers don't even know if their student is in foster care or not. And everyone's always like, well, FERPA, that's a violation. And it's like, if your kid is in your classroom, and they're going through something at home, and all of a sudden a stranger is picking them up from the from the school, we need to know to be able to intervene to help. First off, for safety purposes. But secondly, these kids are being moved. I've talked to some foster youth that said that they moved eight high schools. So they don't get the whole foundation of education. So like mine, mine I was homeschooled, but we were being taught. And then I'm thrown into high school and said, figure it out. And I went from no classes to from teaching myself on Google and through a dictionary to six periods of classes and five of my teachers not caring about that. And I explained like, hey, I've never been in school before. This is my first time. I need a few weeks. But by week two, they're like, nope, you got to get this. We're in the middle of a semester. And one teacher told me, I don't care. Yeah. That's your problem, not mine. And I was like, whoa. So there is some like not all teachers are like that, but a lot of teachers are. When a student gets moved eight different times in a span of four years, there's no educational foundation. And mm-hmm. then they're thrown to your only option. And this is a, a huge thing within foster care is that we are telling foster youth that the only route for you is college and that's it. But there are trade schools. There's things like cosmetology, being a welder. Some some kids are better with building things than they are with textbook things. And that is not a bad thing, but we look down on and we we speak down to that type of education. We tell students that the only route you can go is for safety to get a good job, to get things that you want to pay for is to go get a full-time job after going to school, but then you don't set them up for success on getting the, the money they need to go to college. So then we have all these kids going into college at that point. And only 3% are graduating. Um, there are a lot more support programs here in California for community colleges now. Um, but when I went, there was zero. But a lot of other states in, in the U.S. don't even have anything. So it's like it depends now by state of where you go. Yeah. 
when they did a research, um, and I, I don't remember who it was, but I, I have it somewhere so I can always send it to you. But if you look it up on Google, you can see what the percentage is for kids wanting to go to high, to college from high school. It's 78% want to go. It's like 78 to 80% wanted to go to college. Only 45% of them finished FAFSA and only 3% are graduating from a bachelor's or an associate's across the U.S., the reason is, is because there is a lack of financial support from yeah. family, a lack of emotional support from family. They turn 18 or, or they get extended to 21 if they know that they can do that. But at, it, the, at that point, they're expected just to be out on their own because most of them lose the foster home that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like, I was immediately homeless at 18 and still in high school. Yeah. And I was like, what am I supposed to do with, about this? And they're just like, you figure it out. You're an adult now. And it's so it's like someone had said, you just throw them to the wolves and you hope they survive. And it's like, yeah, we have a lot of support and programs and things like that. But there's so many things that are capping students or these young adults from going to the next level. And one of the big issues, and this is kind of where foster parents come into play, is that a lot of foster parents are not getting the birth certificates, the social security cards. So they're not able to pass them to this young adult to say, okay, go do what you got to do. There's no financial aid training. There's no one walking through college applications. There's no one even walking through a job application to get, or even how to get their state ID. So you have like There's a bigger issue where it's like you have your educational foundation missing, but then there's another big issue in the room where it's like they're not even getting the proper paperwork to be able to do the bigger things that they need to do, like get a job um, and or get their driver's license. And so it's like, oh, you turned 18. Most foster parents go, you're not my problem anymore. Yeah. So in order to change that, we... And it, it's really sad to me. It breaks my heart because I, I was at a conference and we did like a panel that I got to be on. And we had two people on the panel. One was from the 90s. I was in the foster care system in 2005. Um, and again, in 2015 with my siblings, both of our stories married each other, even though in my time, there's been more help. But then someone else from 2023 was like, I was in the foster care system last year and I have the same, same exact experience. And then I posted on Facebook or on Instagram because I was like, this is really hurting. Like, like I'm really it, like hurt by this because it's like, how is it going to be that long that we do nothing? Yeah. And someone from the 60s was like, hey, I was in the foster care system in the 60s and it was the same thing that it is today. And that's something that I saw from my research too. And that just is like, we think that we're doing all this stuff. And when we really look at it, what tends to happen is we keep building a lot of the same things, a lot of the same organizations, a lot of the same programs, but nobody wants to work together. Now, I wouldn't say nobody. A lot of places are like, we're in competition. We are not friends. Um, I hear that as a keynote speaker. I've had places say, no, we don't want to talk to you and have you come in to talk to our youth because you're not a part of our community. And I'm like, I get it that you're trying to protect people, but what if I am somebody who can encourage someone that you can't reach? Um, but we we silo our organizations and we say, no, 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 we can't partner together. Um, you know, and it's really hard to find information. That's the other big issue. And that's something that a lot of schools are trying to change, but the information is still really hard. Um, the, the colleges I spoke to said it takes two to three years for students to finally find out about their programs because we have to wait for them to self-identify as a foster youth. But then when you talk to high school um, and junior high schools, they say, well, we don't even know who's in the foster youth system here anyway, because we have to wait for someone to tell us. And I'm like, that's not great. How's that helping? (laughs) I know it's, 
it's just this whole issue of lack of information everywhere. So it's like, how do we fix an, an issue like this? And it's really, we have to show one that we care for the foster youth and two, that they, that it's not their fault because the reason that I didn't speak up for so long was because I blamed myself. And I listened to my caseworker who said it was my fault. My parents who said it was my fault. My high school counselor who said it was my fault. And it was like, no, it was never my fault. Yeah. But I often was told that, that I'm like, why would I say that this is my life? If people are going to just be like, well, you should have done better. Yeah. You spoke to something we've talked about on this podcast before. We've had some educators that have been on and some trauma-informed people. Um, and and we've, mm. we've talked a lot about how programs are necessary, right? Services for foster youth yes. and they are necessary. But outside of relationships to help them access them and help them utilize them, if those are missing, the program's aren't effective. You know, it's kind of what you said, like, even if we can get the applications to them, the application itself, I fill out some of these, you know, applications for different things. And I'm handing it to my husband because I'm like, this, I don't know how to do this. Um, Or I'm trying to find someone who has walked this road and can actually come alongside me to help me do it. We're always looking for peers who are like, oh, you filled this out before. Can you help me through it? Can you help me know what to expect? The relationships are key. And I do think that that in our systems, regardless of what state you're in, I think we we continually look at these problems as start another program, start another service. If we just get another program and we're missing it, we're missing it. Or, or the other, the other thing I hear often is, well, if we just had a room and I, and I always ask it, I'm like, okay, I understand, but let me ask this question. You have a room right now, right? Yeah. But if it was better, it's like, if it's not happening now, it's not happening when you improve it. I don't care if you have nice couches, but if you come at me and say like, you could be successful if you were in our program, it's like, I'm found success without a program. Mm-hmm. But what I needed were the relationships of the people yeah. who went through it before me and said, Hey, this is how you navigate this, this thing. And they don't all have to be foster youth. I, I found out about a PhD route instead of an ED route for where I wanted to particularly go from a dean and a professor that I had. I said, I want, I want every door open to me. And he goes, go the PhD route. And I said, okay. And that was something that a dean who was not foster youth told me about. But it was the information and the relationship that made the bigger impact for me than a room with a nice couch. Um, and, and yeah, we need, we need the programs. But a lot of these programs are also very limited in who they can help. And it's like, if I'm 18, you're saying I can't be helped unless I'm enrolled in school. But then when I'm enrolled in school, I can only tap into it until I'm 21. Or um, with my case, we recently found out that I was entered in, like when we were younger, we were entered into the foster care system, but they flipped our file to voluntary foster placement, which meant that we went back with family, we, but they label it as parents. Um, even though we were put with sib- my older sister and then my siblings were put with me when I was 24, they label it as it was voluntary. Um, they, they worked together with uh, the foster care system. They went back with the parents and then now they don't get any of the resources right. because they were never labeled foster youth permanency. And I'm like, but they were foster youth. We were foster youth. We went through these systems. And that was why we never got this, the financial assistance that I needed to take care of my siblings too. So it's like, stop limiting these things so much that it really is hurting people from getting the access to this stuff. And then focus on the relationship, not the the dollar amount. Yeah. 
Yeah, the relationship. But that, I think that's hard for people to hear. <laughs> it is, and it it, it sometimes will yeah. come across as um, that you know I, that the programs or the services aren't needed. I think every there's a lot of a whole lot of people in our community who are doing really really great, running really really great programs, and so I never want yeah. um, to to come across as saying that those aren't helpful or those aren't needed. They are very 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 vital. Um, yeah. It's just devoid of relationship alongside those. Um, mm. And the, the other thing that it, it it brings up is, you know, this idea of the river that we talk about all the time. Um, a lot of people we come across will say, well, I'm not a foster parent or I'm not a caseworker or I'm not, I'm not an official person in this space. And this is why we say anyone, any safe person has a place along the river because you have the opportunity to provide a relationship. If you can provide a relationship yeah. through a mentorship or through it being a friend, through being a tutor, through being a coach, through being a teacher, um, you have everything you need um, to help someone mm-hmm. be successful. Uh, I think that's what you're highlighting. Absolutely. One of the things too is like a lot of the times people are that that are making the decisions up here, they're not talking to the people down here that are in the trenches or the foster youth themselves. And so it's like, it sounds like a great idea. Um, but it's missing that relational piece. And it's like, you could have the best program ever with all the money ever. But if you don't have the relationships to build and hear and listen, you're not going to make the decision that's going to actually impact someone long term. And there is still a huge stigma with foster youth that we are just trying to get all this free money or like we're trying to manipulate the system or something like that. And it's like, if you ever talk to a foster youth, they're like, I don't want the money because it needs to go to someone who needs it more. So it's like, if we stop with that, that mental thinking and like bring those voices in with us, we're going to make decisions that are more impactful that are based on relationships versus just based on like, this sounds like a good idea. Yeah. The other thing that you mentioned earlier is the kind of the power of healthy transitions. We talk a lot about, you know, kids transition a lot in the foster care system. And what we think of is kids transition from placement to placement to placement or family to different type Mm -hmm. of home. But what we don't realize is within that major transition, there's all kinds of smaller transitions. And so education is a big one. If you, if we don't realize that kids, when they transition to a new home, that means a new school, um, lots of behaviors Mm -hmm. come up in the middle of transitions where we know that most kids um, DS, or they, they really struggle behaviorally in the, the midst of those transitions because they're scary. They're really scary times. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I love that you you mentioned that as well. Um, it's not just moving from home yeah. to home, but it's moving from school to school as well or neighborhood to neighborhood. And sometimes it's moving from even just from like a counselor to a, like a high school counselor to another high school counselor. Um because mine wasn't helping me. And I went to another one who started to help me, but then she told me she couldn't help me anymore because she was going to get in trouble for helping me. And it was like that created behavioral issues. Cause then I felt like there was no one on my team who was actively guiding me for education. And so I started acting up and it was like, it was just hard because it was just like, well, what am I? I'm a product of my environment. My emotions are happening for a reason. I'm not just doing this to be a jerk. And luckily one of my teachers noticed and was just like, Hey D let's go talk for a second. 
you're not like this. What's going on? And I just told them everything. And they were like, we had no idea you were going through any of this. And I'm like, what? A, like, okay. But my counselor told me he talked to all my, they, my teachers and my caseworker said he talked to all my teachers and he threatened that he was going to kick me out of school. And if I failed a quiz, the teachers had him on speed dial. So it's like, now I feel like I can't even cry in class. I can't even fail a quiz. I can't even do anything all the other students are doing because if I do, I'm out. So, and that's the reality is that sometimes people don't talk, you know, so the, and this is the hard part I found out recently, like this year in 2006, when I was dealing with my caseworker, he was threatening me all of the time. He's like, if you say a bad word, your teachers have me on speed dial. You fail a quiz. They have me on speed dial. You don't show up to class right on time. I'm on speed dial. You take too many bathroom breaks. I'm on speed dial. You will go to the continuation school. I will move you to this other city and or state if I have to. Don't F up. And I'm like sitting here like, what the heck? And so then I turn 18 and he comes into my school and goes, you have to pack up and leave your house today because you can't stay in the same room as your younger sister who's under the age of 18. So I pack up in a hurry and leave and go to a friend's house. And my, I'm with my sister at that point. And she goes, wait, what? Like this year, she's like, wait, what? I was like, yeah, the caseworker told me I had to get out. She's like, dude, I thought you ran away. Like, I thought you were just being a jerk and being like this and that. I was like, no, he was consistently threatening me. And one of my brothers was like, no, yeah, he always was like, he always came down on her and was like this and this and this and that. And like, I was there when he told her that. How did you not know? And it's like, that was our, our guardian who was never brought into the conversation. There are people out there still doing that to foster youth. And it might not be their caseworker. It might be a teacher. It might be even just a friend who they're with, who's like, oh yeah, this one foster care kid I knew. And so it's like, we have to be willing to be all in with these conversations. And when we notice the behavior, we go, hey, what's going on? Like, I know that this is a hard trend. What can I do to help? Uh, this, this has to be hard on you. Even if they're not acting out, it's just like, Hey, are, I'm here. If you do want to process this, I know that this could be hard. I can only imagine that there are a lot of emotions and I'm not going to pretend to understand how you feel, mm-hmm. but I'm here if you want to talk through anything, because that, that just opens up a safer conversation versus like, Hey, you're screwing up. Hey, you're being like this. It's like, I felt at that point I was fighting for education. And I really was because I had just not the greatest team on my side. But then like my older sister is just like, how did I not know that this was happening? I was like, I know I told you, but if you're, if that parent is really stressed out, they're not going to hear what we're saying. But it was just like interesting that she's like, I never knew he said that to you. And I was like, well, he told me he talked to you guys. Of course. I assumed you're all on the same page (laughs) because you guys are doing what's best for me. Oh, yeah. Oh, and on purpose. It was definitely he was not a good caseworker. And I I ran into someone who knows him uh, who worked in the system at that point. And and this person confirms like, yeah, that was who he was as a person. So I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I'm like, oh, that took... 20 years. <laughs> so that's hard. Um, that kind of brings us into our last, our last question just before we close out. Um, if you were sitting at coffee with a, a youth who's kind of in that space now, um, you know, a foster youth who's considering what do I want to do with my life? What do I, should I pursue education? Um, what wisdom would you have um, for someone who might be struggling in that space? I would ask questions first. Um, because really what tends to happen is us foster youth are told like you have to go where the money is. And a lot of us are told like two things. You have to give back to the community. You can become a counselor because of your trauma 
or you should go into the medical field and become a nurse or a doctor. So that way you can make a lot of money. And usually when I talk to lost youth, those are the two areas that they talk about. Um, and I ask them, I'm like, what are you, what are you passionate about? What do you like to do? And a lot of them will be like, well, I want to go be an actor. I want to be a writer. I want to be, you know, I don't want to do that. I want to own my own business. I want to do hair. And it's like, have you talked to the community college just to see what trade like certificates you can do right now and then see if that's an option for you. Um, the other thing I always tell people is just like, have you talked to anybody in that field yet? No, you need to do that. Um, because you could go into school and you're going to change 20 different times. You're going to fail a quiz. You're going to fail a class. And you're going to be like, wow, I'm not meant to be here. But if you talk to someone in the field, you'll find if you really want to go that route. Um, and then no, it's okay. Like if you don't know what you want to do, take a couple classes yeah. and different things that you think that's interesting and see if you like it. Um, but it's okay to also not go that route. It's okay to go work for a year or two and see if you like it. Um, but if you, if you don't want to get a degree, if you don't want to go to college and you want to do something like hair or be a truck driver or a welder, go just do a certificate, get it done and then go and try and then if you don't like it, you can always go back to school later. Like it's not a rush. And, and that's something that's the wisdom I give. It's not a rush. But also too, if you know what you want to do, go for it. Don't let people tell you not to. People will always have an opinion, but they don't pay the bills. Yeah. That's a reality. That's good. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We're really, really grateful for your yeah. voice. Um, I know, you know, I just want you to know that your voice matters so much in this space. And um, we're really, Thank really you. grateful for it. I'm grateful for the book. Um, we will post a link um, to it. It is right here. Uh, yeah. It's lovely. And um, again, your words in it are, are just really, really powerful. And so thank you for writing it, having the courage thank to you. do that. Um, and thank you for the work that you do truly every day. Thank you. Thank you for having me. To those listening, we hope these conversations have inspired you to find your place along the river. And we welcome you to join us in bringing hope and renewal to the city of Houston. If you'd like more information on how to get involved, please visit riversideproject.org and submit a contact form. We'll see you next time.